This reading is from Luther's Works, Linker Edition, Volume 14. We're on page 344. The second sermon for the 24th Sunday after Trinity, Matthew 9, 18 to 26. This sermon is given instead of the preceding one in edition C. And because I don't have a lot of space on this tape, and I read the text on the last one, I'll just mention that it's about the certain ruler who came to Jesus because his daughter was dead, and he wanted Jesus to lay his hands on her, and she shall live. And on the way, Jesus followed him, and on the way, a woman deceased with an issue of blood for twelve years came behind him, and so on and touched the hem of his garment, and was healed, and so forth. Now we start on page 345. Two examples of faith. This narrative is more fully and faithfully presented by the other evangelists, Mark and Luke, and is a rich and beautiful gospel, both in its doctrine and consolation, where it teaches a correct knowledge of the divine will in spiritual wisdom and understanding, as also may be noted in the epistle for today, it says in brackets, and this gospel also affords consolation and strength under the cross and amid suffering. Let us note a few of its lessons. First, the Lord is here represented surrounded by the people, as a kind and affable man. As St. Paul in Titus 3, 4 says that through him the grace and love of God have been made manifest, through which he shows himself willing and ready to help and serve all men, and also renders help to those who in true faith seek it from him. But there are people who are in misery, trouble, sorrow, and distress. He will be with them and permit himself to be found by them, but his word and miracles are useless and lost among the carnally secure, the mighty, the rich, and the prosperous, because they are not capable of receiving his grace and favors. For they are already satisfied and satiated and seek comfort and happiness in other things or even in themselves. In order to receive the grace and benefits of Christ, men must realize they have no comfort and help in any creature, and that they experience nothing but trouble and sorrow. And it is true, as the church sings in Luke 1.53, The hungry he hath filled with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. Quote, unquote. From this you see how graciously and Fraternally, God manifests himself toward us, since he comes to us so closely through his beloved Son, seeks the poor and miserable, in order to pour out his grace upon all who are willing to receive it, because he sent his Son to us in order to be with us and dwell among us. St. John 1.14 says, take care of us as his own flesh and blood. He assumed the same poverty and misery so that he might deliver us from our misery, that is, from 
sin and death. Therefore he also desires that we seek and expect such help from him through faith, as he says in John 6:40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone that believeth the, beholdeth the Son and believeth on him should have eternal life. This is a knowledge which Christians require and through which alone they become Christians and children of God, as Isaiah 53:11 says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. And John 1:12, To them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. For whatever else can be taught, done, or comprehended, however great, beautiful, praiseworthy, valuable, or holy it may appear, cannot make Christians of people, that is, persons who have obtained forgiveness of sins and a gracious God, unless they know and by faith lay hold of the Savior, the Son of God, who came into the world, that by the shedding of his blood he might take away our sins and reconcile us to God. This doctrine and knowledge of the gospel should be cherished and lauded by the whole world because it alone publishes this true and joyous consolation that God has had mercy on poor, unworthy, and miserable sinners and does not wish to impute unto them their sins, but out of pure grace forgives them. No other doctrine or sermon on earth can save or give the same as a whole world, Jews, Gentiles, and Turks must acknowledge. Therefore, no person can of himself reach that point where he is before God free from horrible unbelief and a condemned conscience, is able with a true heart to call upon God and know for a certainty that God will hear him, except alone through this knowledge of Christ whom God himself has appointed as his mediator and publicly testified. He will be gracious, hear, and bless all to call upon him through Christ. Hence those only are Christians who render true service to God and can comfort themselves in the joyful assurance that the true God is their God and that he will be with them and help them whereas all others who do not know Christ are truly without God and cannot call upon him with true hearts, nor be comforted, but must perish before God in eternal and terrible doubt and destruction. This gospel presents two beautiful examples, both of the help of Christ and of faith, which clings to and finds comfort in Christ and obtains help from him. First, that is a beautiful faith of the ruler of the synagogue, which leads him to Christ in his distress at the time when his daughter was lying at the point of death and when he could only say that she must die before he could return home, for he says, My daughter is even now dead. And when all men had given up the hope and thought that help could be secured for her, yet he did not despair, but while the rest of his household despaired, wept and lamented, could think of nothing except how to lay out 
the dead body and arrange it for the flute players and others. He went to Christ in the firm confidence that if he brought him to his daughter, she would be restored to life. He believed Christ was the one who could help not only to restore and maintain health as long as body and soul were still united, but that he could also restore life after body and soul had been separated by death. This was certainly at the time a remarkable example of faith, since nothing like it had ever before been heard or seen, unless perhaps the miracle of the raising of the widow's son to life, Luke 7, 11 and following, had occurred before and the report of it had reached his ears. Nor was it a greater mark of faith that he could without a doubt conclude in his heart Christ would restore his daughter to life. For if he would have doubted and followed the human thoughts of reason, he would certainly not have gone to Christ, but would have thought that he had delayed too long, or that although Christ had restored someone else to life, it would not necessarily follow that his daughter also be restored to life. Since so many sons and daughters of parents were dying, or daily dying, none of them were being restored to life. This is a virtue of the right kind of faith, which was also shortly afterwards praised in the woman who had had an issue of blood also, namely that it clings steadfastly to Christ, grasps and holds fast to the word heard from him, does not inquire or look to that which the human mind may suggest, or to what other people believe or do, but straightway concludes with reference to the reports concerning Christ, that he's the one who can help in time of need, who has helped others and therefore will help now. Such a heart and faith truly finds Christ and receives according to its faith. In the second place, his faith concerning the person of Christ was of such a character which was indeed a great spiritual knowledge, that he rightly regarded him as a true Messiah sent by God, not such as a great mass of the Jews, especially the scribes, thought that he would come publicly before the people as a great and mighty Lord and King with great pomp and show, so that everybody would regard and receive him as the one sent to them from God, and in addition expected that he would deliver them from bodily slavery, under the foreign dominion of the Roman Emperor and establish them as the mighty rulers of the world. On the contrary, over against such dreams and Jewish notions, he regarded him as a true Lord and Messiah, although he was not thus regarded and received by his own people, the Jews, who was sent from God not to confer temporal power, possessions, honor, and freedom to help in those things and necessities where no man can help, namely, to redeem us from the peril of death and the power of the devil, yea, to turn death into life and confer life. He must not be regarded as a mere man, but as that one who truly has in himself divine and eternal power and authority over all creatures, because he believes that he holds in his hands power over life and death. 
that is, that he truly is the Son of God, as the scriptures declare. The other example of faith deserves no less praise, namely that of the poor woman who had an issue of blood twelve years, on account of which she suffered in her body and lost all her strength, because of this, she had long despaired of receiving human help and comfort. She came to Christ as she had heard of him and could come to him in certain and undoubted confidence that he could help her in her great need with a heartfelt assurance that he was so good and gracious as to help her, not let her go on away unaided. Of this she was so certain and confident that her heart was free from care and grief, although she had reason to doubt. She was concerned only with the thought of how she would be able to get to Christ, wandering and thinking, Oh, if I could but touch the hem of his garment. Then she firmly and confidently concluded in her heart, I shall be made whole, but... She did not know how to reach him because she saw the crowd was so great and she, a poor sick woman, could not well break through such a crowd of people. Besides, the law did not permit her to come among the people. Yet her faith and desire urged her not to desist but to press through the crowd until she came behind him and touched his garment. Behold here how her faith overcame two obstacles. First, her faith was so strong that she believed she could obtain help if only she could touch his garment. She did not deem it necessary to come to him with many words, present her complaint, pray that he would have mercy on her and help her, nor did others pray for her, but she sought only to reach him and touch him, for she thought if only she could do this, she would receive help. She neither doubted his power nor his willingness to help, hence she did not deem it necessary to do more in order to secure his help than to touch merely the fringe of his outer garment. Therefore she did not deem it necessary that she should come before him to be touched by him. Yea, she did not regard herself worthy to be addressed by him, nor was her heart so full of confidence that notwithstanding this, she lacked courage to come into his presence, hence was neither seen nor heard by him. Now isn't that amazing? She lacked confidence in one way and yet she didn't. She felt like she couldn't come into his presence and be addressed by him. That part she was too timid. But she thought, if only I can touch his, the hem of his garment, surely I'll be made whole. She didn't lack faith there. So even the timid can come to Christ. But she was satisfied simply to come up behind him secretly and unnoticed by the crowd and did not doubt as to the help she was expected to receive. Nor did her faith deceive her, for as soon as she touched the hem of his garment, the fountain of her blood was stopped. Now, that a poor, simple woman should be able to see and know that this man's help and power were such that it was not necessary to speak to him at length, but that he was able to see in secret, even though he should not publicly show that he 
knows anything of our necessities, a wish to help us, must be the result of a great and extraordinary illumination of the spirit and knowledge of faith. Accordingly, her faith produced such an assurance in her that all doubt was removed, and she realized that if she could only reach him, and even the most even in the most insignificant means, she would be helped. This indeed means a strong faith that this man must possess divine almighty power and authority so that he can see and understand the secret thoughts and desires of the heart, although not a word is spoken, and that he can prove his work and help, although she sees and feels nothing externally except the words we heard him utter which produce faith in her heart. She desired nothing besides this word, nor did she ask for more than merely to touch his garment, which she used as an external means and sign to gain the desired help. Likewise, we need nothing more in our lives and in the kingdom of faith than the external word and sacraments in which he permits himself to be touched and seized as if by his garment. Hence you may see what faith which clings to the person of Christ is and does, namely a heart that regards him as Lord and Savior, the Son of God, through whom God reveals himself and bestows upon us his grace, assuring us that through him and for his sake he will hear and help us. This is the true spiritual and heartfelt worship of God, where the heart has to do with Christ and praise in his name, even though not a single word may be uttered aloud. Gives the honor due him, regards him as the true Savior who can hear and know the secret desires of the heart, manifests his power and help. Although he does not permit himself to be externally touched or approached, According to our thoughts, the other masterpiece of her faith is that she is able to overcome the feeling of her own unworthiness, roll from her heart the heavy stone which weighed her down so heavily, and yet makes her so diffident that she dare not publicly approach Christ like other persons. The judgment passed upon her by the law was that as an unclean woman, she was not allowed to associate with other people. For in Leviticus 15:19, we read that a woman like her shall be regarded unclean as long as she has the issue of blood. Whatever she has on or about her shall be unclean. That whoever touches her, whatever she touches, shall be unclean. Now this proved no small distress to her not only by reason of her malady and bodily uncleanness, but especially because she recognized and felt in it the punishment of God, posed upon her before all people, and which separated her from the congregation of God's people. This continued for twelve long years, during which time she had tried all kinds of remedies with many physicians, yet was not helped by any means, but grew worse continually, so that she was compelled to conclude that God had punished her with special severity because of her sins and would not help her. 
she was now forced to despair of human aid and thought she had to die of her disease and punishment. It was therefore not without a struggle and conflict that she maintained her faith in that which she sought in Christ, for she could not help but think, Behold, I am an unclean woman punished of God, and everyone knows me. If I appear before this Lord, everyone, and even he himself, may simply condemn my boldness and impudence for coming into his presence. And I may receive more wrath and severe punishment from God instead of mercy, be forced to confess that I had been served rightly if he cast me from him in his anger. This trial and struggle show also that, as the text says, after she had been discovered, she was terrified and trembled. Even though she had received the desired help, yet she was filled with fear lest he would speak harshly to her and censor her, because she had not been afraid to come to him and secretly steal a desired help. But her faith, which clearly set before her the good and gracious heart of Christ, broke through all these barriers, besides her great need. Yea, even her despair compelled her to come, become impudent before God, and regardless of the prohibition and judgment of his law, her own shame urged her to conclude, This Savior must be laid hold of, in spite of what the law, my heart, and all the world, yea, what even he himself may say. Here is the man who can help, and who is also a good, gracious, and faithful Savior. On the other hand, I am a poor, miserable woman who needs his help. He will certainly not become other than he is because of me or permit his grace and help to fail me. Let his will be done in me. It will be better for me that I should be covered with shame than the injury I would receive if I should fail to seek the help which I may be able to receive from him. She fixed her heart on the idea that if she could only touch this man, her need would be removed and the desired help received, and she would afterwards speak with Moses and the law afterwards, so that she might remain uncondemned by him, and so forth. Behold, this is a beautiful faith, which realizes its unworthiness, and yet does not permit itself to be hindered on this account, to place its confidence in Christ, or to doubt his grace and help. It breaks through the law and everything that frightens it away from him, yea, if the whole world would attempt to hinder and thwart it. Yet it does not think of leaving this man until it has laid hold on him. Therefore it presses through all barriers and attains what it seeks in Christ, immediately experiences the power and work of Christ, even before he begins to speak. For it cannot apply to Christ in vain, as Christ himself testifies when he says, Thy faith has made thee whole. Besides, faith like this is so pleasing to Christ that he does not wish it to remain concealed in her, and that the power and work made effective by it should remain a secret. But what is in her heart must be published to everybody so that her faith may be praised before the whole world and be strengthened in her. Therefore, turning and looking around, he asked 
and desired to know who touched him, for he felt that power had gone forth from him. When she found she had to be discovered, she became afraid and began to tremble for a heart filled with the great and implicit trust which she had in him, and yet also with humility and a knowledge of her unworthiness, must regard itself guilty because she had gone contrary to Moses, because she realized she must justly be angry. He must justly be angry with her because she could be so bold and impudent as to press through the crowd to him. And hence, in the midst of the work, after she had already been healed and her heart was filled with joy, her faith had to contend with fear and terror and yet only to enjoy all the more consolation and joy in Christ. For Christ does not wish faith to remain concealed in the heart, but desires it to be publicly confessed, so that the glory of God may thereby be praised, and others also be spurred on to believe. Therefore, when this woman was in fear and danger, lest she should be disgraced before all and be condemned according to the law, yea, even she herself be compelled to make a public confession, Christ began to confirm her faith to say she had done well in disregarding Moses and the law. That is, the judgment passed upon her unworthiness, and now he publicly shows the same disregard will have her unaccused and uncondemned. Yea, esteems her faith so highly that he ascribes to it alone the power and efficacy that helped her, just as if he had done nothing in the matter. In like manner, he was accustomed to speak at other times as to the ruler in Matthew 8.13. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And again to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15.28. Be it done unto thee, even as thou wilt. We should learn from this woman to realize the power of faith. And in our temptations and conflicts, to call for help. For as I have already stated, it is through such faith that we become Christians, and a distinction is shown between us and all other people on the earth, Turks, heathen, and Jews. For well, we must know that it is one thing to be a good man, perform many and great deeds, live a good, honorable, and virtuous life, but quite another thing to be a Christian. For in that which concerns our lives and work, we often receive great praise and honor before men, even from Jews and Turks, as many great and excellent men have been highly praised in pagan histories for their uprightness and virtue. Again, there have been many among the Jews, as Gamaliel, Paul before his conversion, Nicodemus, and others, as this poor woman, who have with all zeal lived according to the law, so that in their external life before the world they surpassed many true Christians. But even here, a difference as great as between heaven and earth must be noted between Christians and others. A Christian is one who has a different kind of light in his heart. That is, faith, which truly knows and lays hold on God and truly worships Him. Through the Word of God, he knows and realizes his own unworthiness and receives a true fear of God 
and again finds comfort in his faith, believes and trusts he has obtained forgiveness of sin and redemption in Christ, the Son of God, for his sake is acceptable to God and elected to eternal life, in all his need, when he feels his own weakness or is tempted, can find refuge in God, appeal to him, and expect his help, and he knows he shall be heard. No other person than a Christian has this faith and assurance, be he Jew, Turk, Papist, or whatever he may be called, no matter how pious and good his life may be, how much he may pride himself that he worships and serves God and hopes for eternal life. For the service, worship, and life of such persons still lack two great things which prevent them from being acceptable to God. First, they do not have the true God, that is, they do not know him as he has revealed himself and will be known, to wit, as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his Son. Hence they walk in blindness and miss God because they seek him according to their own notions and apart from Christ and are deprived of the knowledge of the true divine being. Secondly, they lack the possibility of the true and assured knowledge of the will of God because they do not have the gospel. Hence they cannot be certain that God will assuredly hear them and must always remain in doubt whether or not God will hear them and interest himself in their behalf. Accordingly, their appeals and prayers can be nothing more than mere vain and useless thoughts and babblings, through which the heart finds no consolation in God, nor expect anything from him, rather flees from him, and is therefore truly without God, and uses the name of God in vain. But the Christian's prayer consists in this, that he prays to the true God, namely the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself to men through his word. Besides, he has a certain confidence and assurance against all doubt that God will be gracious to him and hear his prayer for the sake of Christ, his beloved Son. This is a beautiful example now of the woman. We will turn to the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. But here, too, faith must contend and be strengthened. For although, as we've already heard, he had an excellent faith, yet it could scarcely have been maintained had it not been strengthened. For while Christ was still speaking with the woman, Mark 5 and Luke 8 says that a messenger was sent, stating that the man's daughter had died, requesting him not to trouble the master. This meant all would amount to nothing since he had delayed too long. Hence he should leave the matter and think only of how to bury his child. This must have been a severe blow to the ruler's faith, but the fact that the woman had just been healed must have prevented his faith from failing and indeed strengthened it to resist the doubts concerning his daughter. And Christ himself is present to comfort and strengthen him against this stumbling block. In order to show that he is unwilling that even such weak faith should be injured in any way, but be established and strengthened, and in view of this he admonishes and encourages all persons by saying, Doubt not, only believe, and so forth. 
This he said in order to see how highly he was pleased with the faith that clings to him, and that he was ready to guard against its being overcome, as he spoke to the apostles, and especially to Peter, who fell so easily, by saying, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and so forth. Now when Christ came to the house, this man's faith had to receive another blow, for there they saw and heard nothing but the tumult, weeping and wailing and blowing of trumpets, which they used at the death of their friends, as we do bells. All this cries in his heart, nothing was left but death. His faith had nothing on which to lay hold against despair, except the word which Christ spoke against the tumult and lamentations by saying, Child is not dead, but sleepeth, on account of which he was mocked and laughed, such a fool, as such a fool. For they all saw and knew that the maid was dead, and that there was no breath or spark of life in her. They could not but think, See, our master or ruler must be mad or silly to bring this fool here, tries to convince us, Maid is not dead, when every one can clearly see she lies stiff in death, a dead corpse, ready to be placed under the ground. They had come together at the synagogue as at a common gathering place, as we do at our churches, where on the Sabbath the word of God was taught, because throughout the whole country there was neither church nor temple except at Jerusalem. And this ruler of the synagogue occupied the same position among them that our pastors occupy, and others occupied the place of assistants or readers, read Moses or preached, circumcised the children, instructed the young, visited the sick and sorrowing to comfort them. They had to be together in the synagogue and testified concerning this work of Christ, even with their mocking and scornful laughter, namely that the maiden had certainly died, been raised from the dead. The ruler, therefore, because he could experience the work of Christ, was compelled in the face of this offense and mockery to cling to the word of Christ, cling to the word of Christ, and with him be regarded as a fool, and in his folly learn this spiritual wisdom that death is not death to Christ, but only asleep. Let us learn from this to become fools with Christ, this ruler and teacher, in order that we may understand these words. Although this man's words may be despised by the world and be regarded as foolishness, yet they are very precious. For in them there certainly lies hid the highest wisdom of heaven and earth. For this passage, as a general expression, teaches you that your death in Christ is nothing more than a mere sleep, so that you may be able to look through and beyond the horrible sight and frightful larva of death and the grave, yea, apprehend the same truth of death. If only you hear these words in faith and accept them as true in Christ, here we have nothing to do with ox eyes or even man's eyes, but with the eyes with which Christ sees and with the ears with which Christ hears. Yea, a mind and heart like Christ himself has. A swine, when it sees the dead body of a man lying before it, 
can only conclude that it is a carcass, like any other dead body, which is devoured by birds or animals, or is decomposed. So also a person without faith neither sees nor understands more, and in this respect cannot be distinguished from the brute, except in so far as he carries his head upright, while that of the brute is turned toward the ground, for his thoughts can reach only as far as this life is concerned. Therefore it is not to be wondered at that the mind should offend and affect such wisdom as this. How can a person be said to sleep when he no longer has either breath or life, buried underground, and is in process of decomposition? On the other hand, he who desires to learn how to perceive and understand God's kingdom, power, and work must shut his mind and understanding, purify his eyes, cleanse his ears, and see and hear what Christ says in this matter and how it is in his sight, apart from this life, where our understanding, mind, and thought cannot reach. In this passage you hear that Christ says that to him the dying of a person is not death, but a sleep. Yea, from his point of view, none of those who have lived and died before our time are dead, but are all alive as those we see standing before us. For he has concluded that all shall live, yea, he holds their lives in his hands. For you must here clearly distinguish between the thoughts and actions of Christ and the thoughts, views, and understanding of the world, as I have said before, so that you may not remain in the blind and brutish thought and opinion concerning the dead and putrefying body, but rather perceive that this is the Lord of all creatures, whether to us they be dead or alive, and that all life comes from him and is maintained in and by him, so that if he would not maintain life, no one could live a single moment. Besides the regular daily maintenance of life, he must maintain it without our help and will when we sleep, a condition in which man has no control over his mind and life, does not know how he falls asleep and wakes again. Therefore, it's not difficult for Christ in the hour when body and soul are separated to hold in his hand the soul and spirit of man, even though we ourselves neither feel nor see anything, yea, even though the body be entirely consumed. After all, didn't he create us? For since he can preserve the breath of life and spirit apart from the body, so he can again bring the body together out of dust and ashes. This he has proved in this and similar examples when he restores to life with one word those who had truly died, whose body and soul had been separated. Hence we must conclude that he holds in his hand the life of those who have died, for if this power did not belong to him, he could not restore life. 
In the second place, you must not calculate how far life and death are apart, or how many years may pass while the body is wasting in the grave, and how one after another dies, but endeavor to grasp the thought of Christ with reference to the conditions apart from this time and hour. For he does not calculate time by tens, hundreds, or thousands of years, measure the years consecutively, the one preceding, the other following, as we must do in this life. But he grasps everything in a moment, the beginning, middle, and end of the whole human race and of all time. And what we regard and measure according to time as by long drawn-out rule, all this he sees as at a glance, and thus both the death and life of the last as well as of the first man are to him as only a moment of time. Thus we learn to view our death in the right light, so that we not, need not become alarmed on account of it, as unbelief does, because in Christ it is indeed not death, but a fine, sweet, and brief sleep, which brings us release from this veil of tears from sin and from the fear and extremity of real death, from all the misfortunes of this life, we shall be secure and without care, rest sweetly and gently for a brief moment as on a sofa until the time when we shall be called by him and awakened together with all his dear children to his eternal glory and joy. For since we call it a sleep, we know that we shall not remain in it, but be again awakened and live, and that the time during which we sleep shall seem no longer than if we had just fallen asleep. Hence we shall censor ourselves that we were surprised or alarmed at such a sleep in the hour of death, and suddenly come alive out of the grave and from decomposition and entirely well, fresh with a pure, clear, glorified life, meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the clouds. Therefore, we should entrust and commend to our true Savior and Redeemer ourselves, body, soul, and life, with all confidence and joy, just as we must commend to him our life without care in our bodily sleep and rest, sure that we shall not lose it, but be truly and carefully preserved in his hand, maintained and again restored. Here you see, as he shows in reality, how easily it is for him to awaken men from the dead and restore them to life, as he came to them as he came to the maiden, took her by the hand, as someone else might do to awaken one from sleep, with the word called, Maid, arise. And the maiden suddenly arose as if she had been awakened from sleep. We see here neither sleep nor death, but wakefulness and freshness, even as Lazarus came forth from his tomb. Behold, this word of Christ is not a matter of laughter and foolishness to faith as 
to others among the prudent and the saints according to the law, who nevertheless remain in fear and terror of death, have to do with their thoughts about death and works. But this word of Christ is to our faith a word of great wisdom, by which death and all the images of death are swallowed up, and in their place true comfort, joy, and life are obtained. The act and experience must surely follow this word of Christ. Faith in his word cannot fail. Let this be regarded now as a masterpiece and a wonderful work of our alchemy or science, which indeed does not turn copper and lead into gold, but turns death into life, your grave into a soft sofa, time from the death of Abel until the last day into a brief hour, a work which no creature has or can attempt except through faith in Christ. If you can believe this, that is, let the word of Christ be true and not a lie, you've already overcome both death and the sting of death, and in their place have obtained sweet rest. Now it's time to turn the tape over. Scripture everywhere affords such consolation which speaks of the death of the saints as if they fell asleep and were gathered to their fathers, that is, had overcome death through this faith and comfort in Christ and awaited the resurrection, together with the saints who preceded them in death. Therefore the early Christians, undoubtedly from the apostles or their disciples, they followed the custom of bringing their dead to honorable burial and wherever possible interred them in a separate place which they called not places of burial or graveyards but cemeteria, sleeping chambers, dormitoria, houses of sleep, names which have remained in use until our time and we Germans from ancient times call such places of burial God's acres. As St. Paul in Corinthians 15.42 says, It is sown a natural body, like a seed put in the ground. For what we now call churchyards were not at first places of burial. but sleeping chambers, cemeteries, dormitoria, houses of sleep. <laughs> this is the teaching and comfort of this gospel lesson. So then I look up the word in the dictionary here, cemetery, and they got, of course, defined as a burial ground from the 15th century after Luther's time, I guess. But then when you look where it comes from, it comes from Greek. Sleeping chamber. Well, actually, it's from uh, Latin, too, which this was Latin, Luther's 
I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's cometarium. In Greek, it's cometarian. Spelled just with a few different uh, letters, but looks like it would be pronounced practically the same way. The Greek common is to put to sleep. So they put the people to sleep, laid them in the sleeping chamber. So that's what the word cemetery means, sleeping chamber or house of sleep. Further, we are shown here as in a painting, both in the woman with the bloody flux and in the maiden, what the result is of attempting to govern conscience by means of the law without a knowledge of Christ. There are two classes of people. One class consists of the sick, poor, timid consciences who feel their secret need and sins, as well as the judgment and curse of the law. That is, that they are under the wrath of God, desire earnestly to be freed from it, seek help and counsel from many physicians, spend all their possessions, body and life, and yet receive no help, neither improvement, neither comfort, but continually grow worse, until they at last give up in despair and resign themselves to death. Finally, Christ comes to them with his gospel. Many good-hearted people have hitherto experienced this under the papacy, who earnestly strove to become pious, did everything as they were directed and taught, and yet gained from it only terrified and timid consciences, and on account of the fear and horror of death and of the judgment day would gladly have ended their lives. This is the result of all teaching at its best, apart from the knowledge of Christ. The other class, like the daughter of the ruler, are those who are without the law, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. That is, they are free and live securely. They do not feel the terrors of the law. They think they are prosperous and safe till they suddenly are struck down and die. St. Paul speaking of himself in Romans 7:11 says that he lived without the law. Well, afterwards, through the law, sin became alive and slew him. So that's the crowd, the multitude. Now, since both the woman and the daughter were delivered from their need and from death, there is no counsel or help other than that which acknowledges Christ and hears the truly comforting living voice of the gospel which has the power to abolish sin and death, to give to the conscience everlasting comfort, joy, and life, wherever these are accepted in true faith. And here the doctrine is clearly set forth that we are justified and saved without our merit, gratuitously alone through faith, and so are delivered from sin and death, the poor woman brought nothing to Christ except her great unworthiness, so that she had to be ashamed of it, yea, was filled with fear and terror when forced to make herself known. 
There was even far less personal merit or worthiness in the ruler's daughter because she lay there in death and was altogether without life and action. In a word, we must confess that in ourselves we have nothing, nor are we able to live or do anything to please or to bring us favor in life unless his pure grace be conferred upon us. But after we have received the forgiveness of sin, consolation, and life, let us begin to teach and to do good works, just as a woman after she had been healed, and the maiden after she had been restored to life, did good and living deeds. Thus we too have power in Christ to live according to the will of God, and know that our lives and works begun in Christ are also acceptable to him. Whatever else might be said here now, how Christ performs his works and wonders in his church, which are seeing the fruits of faith, though secretly and obscurely, as in both these instances of the woman and the maiden, so that the world was not allowed to see them, would make our present discussion too lengthy. Now page 363, the 25th Sunday after Trinity. It says that this sermon is found in all editions of the church apostle. Now the text is Matthew 24, 15 to 28. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch and if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. In this text, there is a description of the end of two kingdoms, of the kingdom of the Jews and also of the kingdom of the world. But the two evangelists, Matthew and Mark, unite the two and do not follow the order as Luke did. 
For they have nothing more in view than to relate and give the words of Christ, and are not concerned about what was said either before or after. But Luke takes special pains to write clearly and in the true order, and relates this discourse twice. First briefly in the 19th chapter where he speaks of the destruction of the Jews at Jerusalem. Afterward, in the 21st chapter he speaks of both, one following the other. Notice therefore that Matthew unites the two and at the same time conceives the end, both of the Jewish nation and of the world. He therefore cooks both into one soup. But if you want to understand it, you must separate and put each by itself that which really treats of the Jews and that which relates to the world's end. This we wish to do now. Notice first how Christ prophesies in this chapter concerning the final destruction of the Jewish nation, which the Jews did not at all believe, even though they had been clearly told through great signs and words, Promises of God, which he made to the fathers, like unto which had happened to no other people upon the earth. They strongly insisted and depended upon the promises made to the fathers, thinking that their nation will continue forever, forever, even as they think at the present time that their kingdom is not destroyed, but has only disbanded a little and shall be reestablished. They cannot get it out of their minds that they are not completely ruined. For this reason, God announced, besides his miracles, with clear and plain prophecies that their kingdom shall have an end, and that God had abolished the external reign of the law, meats, offerings, and so forth, and would establish another which shall endure forever, as the angel announced to the virgin concerning Christ, recorded in Luke 1.33. Quote, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Among the various passages which treat of the end of Judaism, there is especially one that is introduced by Christ, namely the prophet Daniel. Daniel 9.25 speaks of the terrible abomination standing where he ought not. When he says concerning the Jewish nation, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the anointed one, the prince, shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. That makes together 70, 70 weeks or 490 years. And after the threescore, he says, after the threescore and two weeks shall the anointed one be cut off, shall have nothing, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and even unto the end shall be war, desolations are determined, he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause a sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And upon the wing of abominations shall come one that maketh desolate, and even unto the full end. And that determined 
shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. That's Luther's translation version. The prophet Daniel desired to know the definite time when this should come to pass, but he could not learn it. Although the angel pointed out in a definite time, it was nevertheless too dark for the prophet to understand, hence he said before, but at last, at the last time, you shall see everything. That is, your prophecy that is to be revealed to you shall transpire at the end of time. For when Christ sent out the gospel through the ministry of himself and of the apostles, it lasted three or three and a half years, that it almost amounts to the calculation of Daniel, nearly the 490 years. Hence he also says, Christ shall take a half a week, which the daily offering shall cease. That is, the priesthood and reign of the Jews shall have an end, which all took place in the three and a half years in which Christ preached, and was almost completed in four years after Christ, in which the gospel prospered the most, especially in Palestine through the apostles, that when they opened their mouth, the Holy Ghost fell as it were from heaven, as we see in the Acts of the Apostles, so that a whole week or seven years established the covenant, as Daniel says, that is, the gospel was preached to the Jews, of which we spoke before. Now when the time came that a new message or sermon began, there must also begin a new kingdom, that is, where Christ rules spiritually in our hearts through the word and faith. If this is now to continue, then the other must be set aside and has no more authority and must cease. This is a part of the prophecy of the prophets, which Christ is explaining. The other treats of the abomination of desolation. Here Christ now says, When ye shall see this one standing in the temple, and take heed. He wants to say, for that is a sure sign from Daniel's prophecy that his kingdom is now at an end, and do not let yourselves be deceived because the Jews and weak Christians think that it shall never be destroyed. But the abomination of which Daniel writes is that the emperor Cadius, as history tells, had put his image in the temple at Jerusalem as an idol for the people to worship after everything there had been destroyed. For the scriptures call idolatry really an abomination because God abhors and abominates it inasmuch as he is the enemy of no sin so much as this. The others he does truly punish, but he does not cast the people away if they repent, as he says in Psalm 89, 31 to 34. And I'll read Luther's version. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. But this sin called idolatry, which is really unbelief and denial of God, which he cannot at all endure, condemns man completely. 
For where there remains in the heart of man that he teaches and believes correctly indicates that our works are nothing and that we shall be acceptable to God and serve him aright alone through faith, then there will be a truly godly character, there light and truth abide in that place, although alongside of faith there runs a sense of the weakness of the flesh. It is not an abomination before God, but only a daily sin that God will punish unto repentance. Yet he keeps the people, spares them, and forgives them when the people turn to him and learn to acknowledge his goodness. On the other hand, where this faith and doctrine do not exist, then everything is lost, for it's impossible for man not to establish for himself a false worship and choose his own opinion and work and worship it so that he really denies God and his word, and God is entirely turned aside so that his grace cannot operate. Such abomination is generally the most beautiful and the greatest holiness in the eyes of the world, which outwardly appears in beautiful works and customs, but inwardly is full of filthiness, as we can see at the present day in our orders and church services, where they are at their best. However, there are again some Christians who are not like these in their works and ways, but are truly holy, truly holy before God. Now when Christ says, when the abomination, that is, this idol shall stand in the temple, the kingdom shall finally be made desolate and destroyed so that it can never be rebuilt again, as Luke expresses it clearly in these words, quote, but when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that our desolation is at hand. And let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let them that are in the midst of her depart out. And let not them that are in the country enter therein. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And then further on Luke says, Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. Pray ye that your flight may be not in the winter, neither on a Sabbath. For then shall be great tribulation, such as had not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. All this pertains still to the Jewish nation. For if this should come upon us at the end of the world, then would we, according to the text, have to be in the land of Judea, because he really points to that country, it is also true when he says that no greater calamity has been or can be upon the earth than was at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. As we see in history, how unmercifully they were slaughtered and even killed one another, casting themselves into the fire, permitting themselves to kill one another. You can read this all in Josephus' book. It's pitiful and horrible to read, even. Yea, the famine was so great that they ate the strings of crossbows and even their own children. It was so shameful and abominable that like pity and distress shall never be heard again. But they themselves wanted it, hence God permitted them to be thus blinded and destroyed. He would gladly have had mercy upon them and preserved them, but they brought themselves to such distress with their stiff-neckedness that they killed and consumed one another, 
that as they began it, all such murder and bloodshed had to increase. Thus the death of Christ and of all the prophets is most abominably avenged on them, and that without ceasing they rage against the word of God, persecute, they persecuted and they still persecute, drive away the apostles, St. Paul says in Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16, that the wrath of God is come upon them to the uttermost. When such fearful wrath and abominable plagues are at hand, says Christ, then flee wherever you are able to flee. For these words, flee unto the mountains, he that is in Judea and he that is upon the housetop, and so forth, and then again, he who is in the field, and so forth, are all written or spoken symbolically as if to say, hasten quickly away, the sooner the better, and let no one find or overtake you. And I know that's the way it would be if you fleed on a Sabbath day. You'd really be conspicuous because they strictly kept the Sabbath, and they were watching the people so carefully that if anybody would go out to the Romans, they would put them to death. It really watched people, so that's exactly what Christ means here. This also came to pass, after the Jews had been sufficiently warned by many signs that they should submit themselves to the Romans, and they would not, and the disciples and apostles fled away, followed this saying of Christ, they left everything behind that was in Judea, and never returned to take a thing. And pray ye, says further, that your flight be not in the winter, neither on a Sabbath. That is the same as to say, see to it that you flee at the right time, that you be not overtaken. For he did not want to perform a miracle and keep them safely in the midst of the enemy, although he could have done so. For he had determined that everything that was there should be completely destroyed together, therefore all as one mass were only fit for destruction. If there were indeed a great multitude at Jerusalem, according to the record, a million and a hundred thousand men were melted together, as many as were in the city. Therefore Jesus admonishes the disciples that they should not postpone their flight to the Sabbath, when they did not dare to journey, nor to the winter, when it would be cold, but that they should depart the sooner the better, that if they hesitate, an inconvenient time to flee would come. Thus far Jesus speaks concerning the Jews. Now I have said before that Matthew and Mark unite these two ends together. Therefore it's difficult to discriminate, and yet we must discriminate between the two. Therefore notice that what had been said up to the present all referred to the Jews. But now he weaves both together, breaks off abruptly, does not concern himself about the order in which the passages were spoken by Christ, and how they are connected with and follow one another, but leaves it to the evangelist Luke. Yet he wants to say that it shall be thus at the last day, and says, Except those days had been shortened, no flesh shall be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. This refers to both parts, and the meaning is that the distress shall not endure long for the sake of the godly, 
Oh, the war against the Jews did not last quite two years when peace was declared. Since all this has reference only to the end of the world, we wish to apply these passages concerning the Jews also to ourselves, so that we do justice to the evangelist. That a war shall come again as came upon the Jews, I do not expect, because the text says that there shall be such tribulation as shall never be again, as we also read and see. But another punishment shall come upon us, as that as that was a temporal war, so at the end of the world will be a spiritual war, which will overcome the ungodly, which will be in the same condition as the Jews. Thus they harmonize with one another, as that calamity came upon Jerusalem according to God's ordering, and everything was ground to powder, so abominable and even worse shall it be before the last day, when he shall come and make an end of the whole world. For when Christ ascended into heaven, he established his kingdom not only in Judea, but extended it into all the world by means of the gospel, which is being preached and heard everywhere. But we are doing just like the Jews. We deny and persecute the word of God, kill the Christians who confess and preach the gospel, as at the first the Romans, and afterwards to the present day the Pope, bishops, princes, monks, and priests do. This has now been done for more than 500 years, and no one was allowed to preach the word of God unless they repeated from the pulpit the text of the gospel for mere show, and then afterwards brought out of it or put into it the mere doctrines of men. If anyone opposed it, they rose against him with fire and sword and suppressed it. And it avails nothing how they are warned and frightened by words and signs. They still stand in their pride. They storm and rage against it as lunatics, so that God will ever have sufficient reason to destroy them finally and eternally at the last day. Therefore, this passage in Daniel concerning the abomination applies also to us. For we also have indeed a real abomination or desolation sitting in a holy place, namely in Christendom and in the consciences of men, where God alone should sit and reign, of which Daniel speaks in very clear words in the 8th and ninth chapters. For this is the real pure doctrine. If we preach that we are redeemed by Christ from sin, death, Satan, and all misfortune, are planted in the kingdom of God through the word and faith, and thereby are made free from all law, that no man, whoever he be, can enter into the kingdom of God through the works of law or be made free from sin. Wherever this is preached and believed, there Christ reigns spiritually in the heart without a medium. There is the Holy Spirit with all the treasures and fullness of the riches of God. But what's the Pope doing? He's sitting not in a natural temple or God's house, but far worse, in the spiritual, in the new and living temple of which Paul says, Quote, if any man destroy the temple of God, defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. In all times many devils and heretics have tried to sit here, and all who are preaching against the true doctrine. If you want to be saved, then simply join this or that society in order, do this or that work. They draw away the people from faith, works 
although they are using the words Christ is the Lord but in truth denying him for they do not say a single word that he forgives sins alone through grace and redeems from death and hell but they add through this order through this work we do penance for sin we must do penance for sin and atone for it in order to obtain grace which is as much as to say that Christ did not accomplish it he's not the Savior and his suffering and death cannot help for if your work can accomplish it then Christ cannot accomplish it through his blood and death alone or the other would be a vain if you insist upon your works and you drive out Christ you deny and put to shame his precious blood and him with it then he cannot reign in your heart through his word work and spirit but my work is an idol whom I let sit in my heart and reign thus you see whether the Pope is not the greatest ark abomination of all abominations to whom Christ and Daniel refer and the true Antichrist of whom it is written that he sitteth in the temple of God among the people where Christ is named and where his kingdom spirit baptism word and faith should be because he interferes with the office and kingdom of Christ by his fanaticism which he calls the spiritual rights of Christ wants to rule over the consciences and govern with his propositions and works and he can in truth be called an abomination of desolation who is only destroying and lay, destroying and laying waste everything for as has been said Christ and my works cannot abide together if the one stands and the other must go down and be destroyed Wherefore the Pope has made desolate the kingdom of Christ as far as his diocese reaches, and all who join him have denied Christ. St. Paul prophesied all this when in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 he calls him the man of sin and the son of perdition that opposes and exalteth himself against all that is called God or his worship, that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God, but that the papists want to, want to turn this passage from themselves and say that Christ and Paul are speaking of the temple of Jerusalem, that Antichrist shall sit and rule there, amounts to nothing. But Christ says here that Jerusalem together with the temple shall have an end, and after its destruction it shall never be rebuilt. Therefore, since Paul is pointing to the time after the Jewish kingdom, and the destruction of the material temple cannot be understood otherwise than of the new spiritual temple which as he says himself we are there Paul says the Pope shall sit and be honored not above God but above everything that is called God for the name of God does indeed remain the highest honor therefore he cannot exalt himself above the true God but above that which is called God in his worship that is, he is exalted against his preaching and honor, higher than the true God. As is apparent in that so many princes and the world are clinging to him and regard his command higher and greater than the command of God. If any man eats meat contrary to his command or goes out of the impure calling of the priest, monk or nun into married life as God has commanded, 
according to the institution of Christ, takes the sacrament in both forms, then that's considered the greatest sin. They regarded it much less than stealing, adultery, and all open vice against the command of God. And so no one was even allowed to punish them for it. Yea, that they themselves defame the word of God, persecute and kill the Christians, they esteem as the highest service of God, as it is also the highest service they can do for their God, the Pope. Is not this exalting and honoring Antichrist against God? So if anyone speaks or does anything against this, if he gets into their hands, he must immediately die. I think now that enough has been pictured forth, explained concerning this abomination. Now it is high time for him to run and flee, who is able to flee. Let everything he has be left behind. And depart the sooner the better, not with his feet, but with his heart, such a way that he will be rid of the abomination and enter the kingdom of Christ through faith. But to do this, reason and a keen insight are needed rightly to discern the abomination. It cannot be seen in any other way than when we compare it with Christ who teaches, as stated above, that we are reconciled to God and are saved through his blood alone. But the Pope ascribes this power to our works. Thus you ever see that to be saved through works and not to be saved through works, to believe on Christ as our justification before God, contrary to each other. If you then want to remain with Christ, you must flee from the Pope and let him go. This is now the abomination of desolation that has reigned until our time, but is now revealed through the grace of God which will never be destroyed by emperor or worldly power. It is higher than that material destruction, since that was such a great tribulation that there never can be a greater physical one. Therefore did God reserve the destruction of this abomination for himself, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth, bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming, Although they themselves fear evil from worldly power and insurrection, yet this shall not be so well with them. For they are not worthy of such mild punishment. God will not grant unto them that they be destroyed through man, but will do it himself without means through his word. Inasmuch as it has now made a beginning, and that the kingdom is destroyed even to the extent that it avails nothing, or can take captive the conscience of those who know the gospel, However hostile the Pope rages against the gospel, he must nevertheless fall at the feet of princes and seek help from them, hence his power is weakened and broken by means of the gospel. But his final destruction is reserved unto the last day. Therefore it must continue in part until Christ at his coming shall destroy and grind to powder altogether from heaven. But as at that time among the Jews the days were shortened, as Christ said, so must now also the days be shortened for the elect's sake. For we see that the government of the Pope has had opposition, has declined during the last hundred years without, at the Council of Constance, where Huss was burned at the stake, have, having frightened everybody that he was held as God. 
But the truth came finally to light, so that now it is very much despised and can endure but a little longer. Hence we notice, as I said before, that our text refers not only to the Jews, but also to our abomination, the Pope's kingdom. Now Christ says further, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or here, believe it not. From this passage we should indeed know and understand how to conquer the Pope with his rebel horde, to abolish the kingdom of Christ and bind the Christian life to external and visible things as they only also publicly declare where the Pope is, there is a Christian church. They want to lead us to the point that we should find, feel, and touch it in person or state or in a manner that is wholly external. Thus they do in all their cloisters and institutions. Therefore they say, if you enter this calling, eat, clothe yourself, pray and fast so and so, then you will atone for your sins and be saved. Heretofore Christ pictured this beautifully to us, pointed to all these cloisters, callings, and works by which they wish to help the soul, and he warns us to be careful of them and not to permit ourselves to be drawn from the foundation upon which we stand. We cannot become Christians through any such thing, but are redeemed from all evil alone through his blood, planted into his kingdom, if we believe. He thus takes from our eyes all temporal and external things, casts to the ground with one word all doctrines that do not proclaim faith in its purity, and all life that is not regulated according to the right doctrine of faith. In short, he adds, if anyone says, here or there is Christ, then believe it not, which means, beware of everything that leads you to works, for surely it deceives and separates you from me. And then he gives a warning, saying, there shall rise false Christs and false prophets, shall show great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. These are admirable, earnest, and fearful words. These preachers of works must force this truth into the people with such a show and emphasis that even the saints who stand in faith cannot protect themselves against it, but are led astray thereby, as has been the case. For the dear fathers, Augustine, I think Jerome also, likewise St. Bernard, Gregory, Francis, Dominicus, and many others, although they were godly men, have all erred here, as I have often remarked in other places. For this error that the Christian life was bound to external things was early introduced, and they with others were swept away into it, and it went so far that they were led into it by the out, their outward conduct. As we see in the books of St. Bernard, how poorly he writes when he answers anyone on the questions of their monastic life. But when he writes freely out of his own soul, he preaches so elegantly that it is pleasure for him, as Augustine, Jerome, Cyprian, the great and noble martyr, and many others experienced. But when any question was laid before them concerning the law and external regulations, whether we should understand it so or so, then they immediately stumbled and fell, so that little was needed to mislead them. Still the followers of Pope use this as their greatest argument against us. They say, 
Should so many holy people and teachers have erred, and should God have forsaken the world so completely, they do not see that this becomes to them a stumbling block to cause their fall. What shall we now answer them? The passage lies clearly before us. This we must believe and let it stand. We cannot get away from it, even though the holy angels in heaven were against it. For should not Christ be holier and his word count for more than their words? For he never at any time says, Lord of the many or the great multitude, but of the small number of the elect, they should stumble, so that they would almost be led astray. And he warns us that we should not cling to this when we see that they cling to external things. Had they then not erred, Christ would not have been right when he proclaimed it. Now if all the saints should come and bid me believe in the Pope, his teachings, I would not do it, but say, even though you are of the elect, Christ nevertheless has said that there should be abominable and dangerous times, but you also must err. Therefore, we must cling alone to the scriptures and to the word of God, which says he is not here, neither there. Where he is, there I shall be and remain. He will not be there where work calling is, and whoever teaches me otherwise deceives me. Therefore I still insist that nothing avails that they propose, as, for example, the holy fathers and teachers thought so and lived so. Hence we also must think and live in like manner. But this avails. Christ taught and thought so. Therefore we must also think the same, for he is the authority above all the saints. And then the next verse, Behold, I have told you beforehand, and so forth, must come on another tape. So that's the end of this tape. There's only another page and a half to this sermon.